Hi everyone, welcome to American Textiles Threading the Needle, sponsored by the National Council of Textile Organizations. I'm Christy Ellis and I'm NCTO's Vice President of Communications and host of today's program. I'm so honored today to introduce Kathy Leonard, founder and CEO of Auburn Manufacturing Incorporated. Thank you for joining us today, Kathy. Christy, it's a pleasure to be here. Nice to talk to you. Great to have you on and, and so interested in delving into some of the issues and, and also your sort of personal journey as the head and the leader of an American textiles company. So Kathy, you recently had a historic visit to your facility in Auburn, Maine from President Joe Biden and we're really eager to hear about it and, and know how it reflects on your company and the entire textile industry, which employs today 538,000 workers and has shipped $65.8 billion in the past year. So you're a woman-certified business and poised to expand your business even after years of challenges that your company has faced. And just curious to hear, and if you would share with us what it means to be a woman leading an American textile company in Maine and highlight some of the barriers you've had to knock down along the way. Sure. First, I'm not a Maine native, but I moved here back in the 70s. And so I moved up here and got a job at a textile mill in Lewiston, Maine. Textiles were a major industry in the state from the 1800s on into the early 70s was when they started going south. So, you know, it's interesting. We have so much in common with our Southern partners in NICTO, even though I'm in, you know, industrial textiles and industrial fabrics, I like to say, are things that protect plants, people, and equipment. Whatever it is, it needs protection from heat or protect something that's heated from going elsewhere. There, there's industrial textiles that are not heat resistant, but ours are specific to heat resistance. So I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much that I stayed with it until I got thinking, you know, I really do. I love it, but I want to make more money and I, got, I might have to do something else. But I, I, I guess I showed my ambition. And so I ended up going into business with another gentleman. And so I started Auburn Manufacturing in 1979 in the town of Mechanic Falls. And so I've I've always been the president of the company. And that was only because there were only two people back then who cared. Who, you know, it's like, oh, you got the short straw. You're the president. And I was like, OK, you know, and I really didn't know much about being a president of a company or much about business at all. I knew the marketing side. So I went back to school part time, got back to college and learned more about economics and accounting. And so it was it was fun and, and uh, only in the 80s was when it started getting more complicated because we we were we did well you know we we kept growing like by 50% when you're tiny you're going to grow by 50 100% you know each year and uh we got big enough where we had to build a building and and now we're you know in a 10,000 square foot building and then we're in 20,000 30,000 and we're adding people and equipment and uh so life changed in the 80s and i got to say that was a little tough at that time being a woman. It can play for and against us a little bit. I felt like it it brought us under a lot of, you know, we got a lot more press and a lot more attention because it was a woman-owned manufacturing company. You know, I've always been considered, what a weird 
thing, you know, and did she inherit it or what, you know, right. <laughs> she didn't start it, did she, you know, sort of thing. And then there's that scrutiny around it that you can sort of feel it's palpable when you meet people. And so I had to work through some of that, you know, as a, as a woman owner, you know, how, how hard do you push back or do you just go with the flow? And I tended to go with the flow. You know, I like, I like everybody. And, and the way I, I grew was to join organizations like Nikto you know, where I could network with people. I think a lot of women have that ability. We're good at it. And and I loved doing that. And I would join organizations that had something to do with the industries that we served too. So I learned more technical knowledge about those things, become a committee member so that you can you can add to the conversation. And little by little, you gain a lot more, you know, recognition and not recognition, but respect is probably the better word. You earn it, you know, but it takes time. And in the meantime, I was having the best time of my life. You know, I really, I really do like what I do. There's no question. After 20 years in business with a partner, I bought his shares and he retired. And so for for the next 20 years plus, I've been running it. And I got to say, I like doing that. And it, it's really nice being a, you know, a one owner uh, person for a while. I like it. That's such a great personal story, Kathleen. It sounds like you're a natural small business owner, even as you started from the ground up to build this company. Do you still run into barriers or do you find it's easier as a woman and a leader? Well, you, this is not a video, but you, you, if it were, you'd see my gray hair. And I think that's a plus. Proves that I've earned my key, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> I've earned my way. And, uh, and now I think people... It's like, wow, that's great. You know, and I will say that the young people coming up, the young women have it all over me, you know, over us as a group, because they've got way more confidence and I think support from everyone around them for what they're doing. When I started out, no one, you know, they just thought I'd be a secretary, you know, and and that's all you're ever going to be sort of thing. And uh, and nowadays, uh, no, everybody can shoot higher, and they do. And I'm always amazed at how eloquent the younger generation is, and they are equal, and they they prove it every day. <laughs> so they do, yeah. and they exude self confidence as well. I mean, in many ways, you're a trailblazer. Then you know, yeah. on so many levels, you know, whether it's in Maine or just really within the entire textile industry, you were one of the first women leaders, I assume, you know, and, and really sort of open, had to open a number of doors for, for those who are following you. So I think that's such an inspirational story. And, but we also talk about the challenges you've faced and Auburn has faced over the years, you know, both yeah. from an economic perspective and a global trade perspective particularly really as it relates to unfair trade competition and China in particular, as you know, you brought and won a successful trade case, an anti-dumping countervailing duty case, which I'd love to have you sort of explain to our listeners. So many people who won't even understand what that, what that is and what kind of case that is and how it's a trade remedy, right? That companies, American companies can use to try to fight unfair competition. But you won this case against Chinese producers who were dumping product on the market uh, at below cost. And you came out on the other side of that, poised to grow. So that's that's an incredible story. Can you provide some insight into how the predatory trade practices by China and really and other countries impact your business? Sure. It was a long road. It didn't start with China. There were countries before China that 
did start shipping material into the U.S., especially silica fabrics, which we make. They're at the time that you know who the players are because there's only three companies, right? You know each other. We're not friendly, but we're competitors, and we know you know we know each other. But the first co- country that started importing into the U.S. or exporting to the U.S. was Japan. And one didn't know that in the marketplace because it was being sold through a distributor. All of these products that come into the United States, it's not like you can just say, oh, it's from China. It's from Japan. It's from no, because it comes through several layers of distribution. And usually they are, well, they are American companies. They're not the exporters. And so you can you can present yourself as a manufacturer or you can present yourself as a distributor of the product. And as long as uh, nobody asks where it's made, don't ask, don't tell, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we knew that Japan had done that. And the I believe the other two manufacturers, because we were just the little kid at that point, they uh, they, they took action against them and, and won. So there was a duty put onto the Japanese product then. And that company just got out of it. I mean, the Japanese wanted no part of that. You know, they've got bigger fish to fry and, and so forth. So then um, over time, we became aware that Eastern Europe was importing or exporting materials into the United States because they have a lot of technology to make t- advanced textiles because they serve the Russian military. And so when Russia was sort of toning down its military, they had excess capacity and they started selling it into the United States and even to military installations. And so we caught that, you know, I started getting involved in that because all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, why is this specification changing for this? It's a different spec and it it matched the Eastern European product. And so that's when I started getting to know my legislators because, because it just didn't seem fair that they were that somebody was importing this material and selling it even to our military. And so that was an on and off. We were somewhat successful, some of that, but at least we learned who were the players, you know? And as it went on, they, over the past decade, one of those countries has been sanctioned at least three times because of its ties to Russia. And so when that happens, all of a sudden, the domestic industry gets orders <laughs> again, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, I didn't know this was happening, you know, so it just keeps, you know, it, it, it's kind of an, it's an, it's an underlying situation. It's not easy to see. And so as time went on, I learned about looking at HS codes, you know, harmonized um, uh, codes for imports and, you know, taking a look at who's importing what from where and and then it led to you know learning that china became the biggest player in you know the mid last decade and we found that we lost like 30% of our domestic business in a couple of years because they're so they were so much bigger than anybody else who had played in our markets and again it all went through american companies so it was a little difficult to figure it all out but I got to know, I got, because of talking to trade groups, uh, I had joined an ITAC, the industry, industry Trade Advisory Committee. And that's, well, I actually knew Kim Glass before that, but she was uh, involved in that at the Department of Commerce. Um, and we've been, we've always been parallel, you know, for, for many years through through a lot of this. And so little by little, we learned that had happened to us. And I decided it was either that or just give up the business. And I wasn't going to do that. So, you know, not, not without trying. So we, we were uh, advised to see a trade lawyer in Washington 
they really tried to make it work for a small company because they believed in us. And so we did it. And that only took 18 months, believe it or not. That was pretty warp speed, you know. And so it ended up that we got a uh, up to a 300% duty on Chinese imports of silica fabric. And that's huge, you know, 300%. And I think what that says, it isn't that the U.S. was being cruel to China. It's that that's how much the difference is between their price and the, the real price in the U.S. They were putting in 70% of the of the domestic of their domestic content and the government was paying for 70%. So that's only 30% that the company had to put in. Can you imagine if we all were able to do that? You know, be a different government story. subsidies, right? Exactly. Uh, give you a competitive advantage. And to yeah. be clear to our listeners too, Kathy, so an anti-dumping case, how do you prove an anti-dumping case? And in this specific case with the Chinese silica producers, they were dumping product below what it costs you to make the product, right? And you had to prove that. Right. Is that is that right? right? You're absolutely right. And that is the toughest mathematical <laughs> debacle I've ever been through because they turned us inside out, and and not the Chinese or or even our government per se. The 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 legal firm hires what they call economists that come in and go through every bit of your financial information regarding how you make your product, you know, what goes into it and what the labor costs are. And, and they even have to convert it all to kilograms. So everything has to be converted so that it's it's a worldwide, you know, one common denominator. So I never really, I had such a hard time figuring out what does this mean, you know? We did it though. And because we're a small company that has had very good records, we always had good accounting records for our inventory. We know exactly how much goes into every product. And we also knew our customers. We knew exactly how much all these people had bought and who they were and so forth. And so they took all of that information and were able then to present that to the government, to the Department of Commerce and well, the International Trade Commission and then the Department of Commerce to take the case. You have to convince commerce that it's worth their getting their feet wet in it, into it. You know, why should they be spending taxpayer dollars to, mm-hmm. to do this if you're not, if you didn't have a good case? So you really kind of have to prove your case before they'll take your case. But then they go over to the violating company or the one that's allegedly violating and they do audits. And now how they do that, I've never been very clear on because I'd only see the documents that the lawyers send me and a lot of it's redacted. So you don't get to see exactly who's who, you know, and that was very difficult for them to do. I mean, commerce folks must have worked very hard to get enough data that could show was it dumping or wasn't it? And it proved that 70% of the product was was really uh, state-owned. <laughs> you know, they're made by state-owned enterprises, or or at least they're subsidized to that extent if they don't make it themselves. They actually make the, the government-owned entity that makes the base material, you know, so that is government-owned. And then they also, the Department of Commerce also comes to the United, back to the United States and looks at all the folks that are buying these products and they can tell you what the difference is. The, the price in the United States through distribution was almost 40% less than our price. And that's after going through all those levels of distribution. 
So there was no way we could win that. You know, you don't, you can't compete with that. And that's what we've been trying to say for so long as an industry, you know, and many other industries too in the United States. And so people say, well, it's because you pay your people too much or energy is too expensive here, taxes, blah, blah, blah. No, there's no way you're going to make that up. (laughs) You're just, you're doomed to failure. Once we found that out, that's when, you know, it was like, okay, even if we don't get our business back, at least we know it wasn't our fault. There was nothing we could do. And as it turned out, we did get our business back slowly. It didn't happen quickly. It's not. And and I have to say, there's another piece to this. I hope you don't mind me going on here. But um, back in the old days, with quotation marks, um, there was a there was a provision called the Bird Amendment mm-hmm. that set forth that businesses in the United States that win an anti-dumping case get part of the duties that are collected upon entry if those as those products come into the United States so that you can rebuild your own company. Because we paid out a lot of money to do our anti-dumping case and we didn't get a penny back from anybody. All we could hope for was to get our market back. Mm-hmm. And we had to wait for that for almost, it took almost three years because while the anti-dumping case was going on, those imports kept coming into the United States and they were stockpiling them, obviously. So we had to wait like till their stockpiles went down. And then we started, we started getting the business back in a, in a bigger and bigger way. And then they came, turns out they, we had to look at this whole thing again because they changed the HS code on it in order to circumvent the tariff. So all of a sudden, the business is going away again. And we're like, what is going on? You know, It's like a game of so, whack-a-mole, you know? Yeah, tell me about it. That's just what my lawyers <laughs> said. And, and they know it. And they, you know, we're not unique. Okay. we It's like, yeah, we knew. We knew this would happen. You know, and you have to start over. And it hasn't been as bad the second time we've we've worked at it. I mean, you you just go back to commerce and you have to you know, petition in a different way, and you know it's a, a more red tape. But at least we've we were successful in both situations. So yeah, it's a process. It's a process, and maybe it's going to be a never-ending process. I don't know, but I do know that we're happy now, and and I'm glad we did it. But I can understand why people are afraid to do it, especially without that ability to get back some of the duties for your own company. It, they took that and that we traded that away when we joined the World Trade Organization. I did not know that. And I remember the Bird Amendment for some reason, but you know, I didn't know we traded it away. <laughs> I know. And you know, even to people who don't understand really all the ins and outs, right, of, of trade policy. And, and, and it, I think it would come as a surprise even to many of our listeners what you've had to confront, right? It's not only mm-hmm. just business conditions um, here in the U.S., but it's right. um, all of this competition. And we believe in fair competition, right? Fair competition is something that, you know, obviously is established. That comes but with the territory. You know? Right, but it's when countries and companies start cheating. And, and that's, I think, something that might be encouraging to people to hear that a small company can stand up and fight it and that there are tools, right, in the U.S. Right. that you can fight these, you know, illegal practices, so to speak. So. Right. And I have to say, you know, I didn't start my career thinking I would be in manufacturing, but, you know, I know there's a lot to it by, you know, having been in it. 
we have a lot of capital invested in our companies. You know, you've got buildings, you've got a lot of equipment, got skilled people working. There's a lot to it. So we know it's not easy. You don't just buy and sell something. Okay. Right. And to go through all that to, and I know I've seen, I've seen other manufacturers that went offshore the minute they could, because it was cheaper. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't, I never bought that because I was like, no, that's not efficient. You know, I want my supply chain as close to me as possible. It's already right here in the United States. Why do I have to go offshore, start importing? And then, and then I've got my investment in all my plant and equipment. Why would I just close that all down? It it didn't, I didn't think it made sense. And I think I'm very, I don't want to say happy about it. But I mean, you're seeing as the reshoring has begun in the United States that other people are, you know, more and more thinking, gee, and I think it took, (laughs) took COVID really to make us understand it when you see your healthcare workers, you know, wearing plastic bags because they can't get, you know, (laughs) the proper apparel, you know, that was a scary, scary time for all of us. And I know Nikto was right in the middle of it. And another turning point, really, right? Because the global supply chain disruptions um, also kind of exposed the fact that these long, elongated supply chains from Asia and elsewhere weren't able to fulfill that desperate need for PPE, which is personal protective equipment, like medical supplies. Just talk a little about how important it is to have a domestic supply chain here, Kathy. And, you know, and you mentioned reshoring. Are you you seeing companies and your customers invest in more in you know US made products and American made products? Well, I do see an uptick in our maintenance, repair, and operations. And that those are materials that go that are used while making other products. They don't go into products, they're used for maintenance to protect from heat. Industry uses a lot of those things to keep their equipment running or when they're starting them up. And that market has increased markedly, you know, in the past oh, couple of years. Okay, it's come back and it had waned because so many people had moved offshore. So we're serving the industries either that's toughed it out like we did or that are reshoring now. And on top of it, there's all this new business coming in. I just re- read today that Georgia is becoming a big state for one of the uh, car companies. Out of South Korea is moving here. You know, they're, they're already committed to building a huge plant. And then they're also adding peripherals that go with it for 300 people there, 200 people there. Those are great jobs. So that's going to be, and they're building the supply chain around the, the electric car company. So those are really, really good jobs. You know, they're going to be safe with benefits. It's it's really good for the United States. So and and I think supply chains it, it's showing right there that they want you know automotive companies want everything around them you know and I I'm the same way in terms of my little tiny company I mean yeah I'm in Maine and my suppliers are many mostly in the South but that's a truck ride you know it's like a day and a half or you know something like that it's not like I have to wait for a container ship to show up you know and I'll tell you that helped us tremendously when the economy started coming back out of COVID because competitors who were bringing in their materials from offshore all of a sudden were, oh my gosh, you know, they were out and with long lead times. We had some long lead times too because our supply chains couldn't react fast enough either because it had been a pandemic, they had lost people. 
that sort of thing. So, you know, there were these fits and starts, but we we really came out of it much better, you know, than than the folks that were importing. So I think it taught us a lesson there as well. I think we're right to honor that. And I, and there's another thing about a good supply chain is that you build a relationship. We have vendors that we've had for 20, 30 years. And they tell me this now, you know, they're like, well, you guys are at the head of the line in terms of availability because you stayed with us. Ah, that's nice to hear. <laughs> Indeed. And, you know, and think about, too, your your um, employees, you know, and the pride they take in making products here. Um, if mm-hmm. you could talk a little about your company and your how many employees do you have and, and you know, how important it is, is it to them to have a position in their state, you know, and, and knowing that they're making for industry here in, the, in this country. Right. Yeah. I mean, the area that we live in, in central Maine, has been more managed manufacturing oriented throughout the years. And so we've got people who do like to work physically and they like, but they need to make a living wage. I think there was a, you know, during this whole period where we got rid of a lot of manufacturing or downsized a lot, we couldn't afford to pay people much. So then they started taking service jobs. Okay. They went out, left manufacturing and felt like they were making just as much on the service jobs. That hasn't worked out all that well. The service jobs can come and go as well. But there are those who really like working on a line or, you know, making something. They want to see something they've made at the end of the day. And so we we have kept our people, oh gosh, I mean most of our people retire. They don't, you know, they don't just quit. So we're we're at about 55 people right now and we're trying to hire more because we're just so busy, but there is a workforce shortage. I mean, we have a we have an unemployment rate in Maine right now of 2.7%. So it's almost impossible. And I will say this though, okay, as, as far as having been in business for a long time and being a good employer, you know, we try to make a living wage and we have brought a lot of people, well, all of our jobs have gone up tremendously in the past year and a half. And so because we know the market's changed, so you might as well just get used to it. You know, it's we're going to be paying more and good. They need it. You know, people have got to pay a tremendous amount for child care these days. It's expensive. And so if they're going to work, they need to make a, a living wage. But what I, we are finding is when we do hire some new people who are coming from other companies, what they like about us is some of the some of the benefits that we have. Mm-hmm. We have medical and dental. Now, you think dental insurance, but that's not that big a deal. But it is a big deal. You know, people want benefits. And what my HR guy said was, you know, we really are. We're a little company that acts big, you know. And I said, yeah, that's right. And I'm proud of that. We've always had healthcare insurance. We never gave it up. We didn't pay people more per hour and let them go find their own health insurance. Another thing we have at our company that interests new workers is we have a, a what we call a camp or a lodge up in Rangeley, Maine, further north from here. It's on a beautiful, beautiful lake, you know, and near a, near a, a ski mountain too. And it, the employees can all use it. You know, we have a, a lottery system. So everybody picks their number out of a hat once a year, and then they get to pick which time they can use it. But whenever it's not being used, somebody can use it. But it's a, it's a great place. And so many people, some people have gotten married there. You know, they take their whole families up. And so it's been a nice thing. And people who are starting here go, wow, that's a nice benefit, you know? So yeah, really nice perk. I mean, and, yeah. and 
The fact that you treat your employees well, too, is so important. I mean, you know, we hear so many stories about um, workers in garment industries around the world that are being mistreated and abused. Yes. You know, if we can make that comparison to sort of ethical production and sourcing is such an important buzzword, but it's also real. Um, And it's real when when you hear stories like yours and how people are really, you know, taking pride in what they do and, and benefiting from it. Well, yeah. I wanted to talk a little quickly about sustainability. Sustainability is a big, you know, part of our industry, and it's very important also to consumers. You know, they want to know they're buying products that are made in a sustainable way. How has that kind of played a role in your company's growth, Kathy, and, and really in, in terms of the industry's growth? Well, I, I don't, I, I haven't been as active in sustainability. You know, we're not a very big company, so you know, we don't have a sustainability person, you know, heading it up. And we certainly follow all the environmental guidelines. We have licenses for what we do in terms of the materials that we use a lot of water in our system. And when we have to send that water back to the treatment center, what, you know, there's rules about how much of this or that can be in it. And we're very careful and we're looking at new ways of, of preventing anything from going into that water. And, and there's ways to do that. So we're in the process of that right now, which is a major undertaking. But again, if, you're, if you've been hollowed out, it's hard to think about sustainability when you're thinking about just staying alive. We also, you know, the materials we work with have always been safe. There's no, uh, the, the coatings that we use are solids. They're not liquid you know, so there's no waste in them. The materials are safe, you know, from a hygienic standpoint, you know, they're not respirable like other fibers that were, and it can be carcinogenic. You know, we've always been careful about following all those rules about anything. And that's another thing about staying U.S. is that you know what's in it. You know, there's no, there's no other materials in it. And we're very careful about having the documentation on that from all of our suppliers. So, yeah, I think I'd love to have the luxury of, you know, spending more time with sustainability, but I think that'll come in the next in the next few years, because we really are on an upward trajectory, which leads us into President Biden's visit. Because yes, yes, I don't think he would have been here had our story of, you know, survival and then revival <laughs> had been attractive enough. You know what I mean? Yes, let's definitely delve into this. I mean, it's so exciting. I mean, and how important was it to have a president, you know, and a president of the United States to visit your facility? And and how important was it to Maine and really your employees? You know, it's it's kind of interesting to see, you know, this may not have been the first visit a president has made to a textile company, but it's certainly the first in many years. And do you think that this administration's policies in terms of bolstering Made in America products and government procurement, which I know you're really, you know, is very important to your company and workers is effective. Yeah, I've thought about it. No one has really told me what exactly the criteria was to to be selected. But I think part, I think there's several things that happen. And the anti-dumping case, I think may have had a little bit, you know, it raised the awareness of who we are to some extent with some proof of who we are. And we are a survivor. I think that's been documented. We've had plenty of press about that. And like I say, over the years, 
I have not been shy, you know, even though I might have not been comfortable, but I certainly connected with our legislators in the state of Maine about some of the things that were going on, you know, when they're when they're happening. I'm not I'm okay with talking to them. And I've been to Washington through industry trade groups like yours. And, you know, you can get right in front of your legislators in Washington or their assistants and, you know, tell them what's going on with you. And so we've always felt like we have the ear of our government. And in fact, I did get a call from Senator Angus King to say, I hope you're not going to hate me for this, but I'm the one that told them, you know, that they should come see you. And (laughs) and he knew because he knew how hard it was to get ready for that, you know, and he he probably knew that I was going to give him some grief about that at some point. And so I think everybody knew our story. And in in the last go round we had with our anti-dumping thing, we had several people come here from customs who wanted to know more about what was going on and so forth. So yeah, there's just a lot of interaction with this little company and Washington. And so, and here we are, textiles. Okay, so I think that was very interesting to them that, you know, that's a an industry anybody can relate to in some way, you know, if you wear any clothes. And so it made a good story there. Uh, the fact that we're, you know, 43 years old in, in business shows that we're survivors. We did stay American. We are American now. And and so all of that, I think, rolled into it. But, you know, they didn't give us a heads up, you know, that, oh, gee, you're chosen. Thank you. You know, you've been awarded the president's visit. Um, they They sent people here to check everything out, you know, for two days on a weekend. And we knew by Monday that they were going to that this would happen. So they, it started on Saturday and then the president showed up on Friday of the next week. So what we did to our plant was unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's a nice plant anyway, but there was a lot of stuff we had to take out. You know, it's like having company and your closets are full. You know, it's not, a, it's not you can't close the door on the closets. Right. And, and he was, he was lovely. He was, he did a great job. He had a lot to say. I know he believes in manufacturing. He always talks about his roots in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which I've been through and, and can understand that it's similar, you know, it, it, it's blue collar, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. in fact, I think, you know, we have, we have suppliers out that way. So, you know, it's all um, tied together and he's comfortable in a manufacturing plant. So yeah, it was, it was the, uh, one of the highlights of my life. No question. I'm sure. And of course, Kim Glass was there. And so it was a mix, a real mix of people, but mostly working folks. And they were, they were very happy to have met him. And, you know, regardless of their politics, everybody wants to meet a president. It was, it was I think everybody who went anyway, enjoyed it. Yeah. What an incredible highlight, you know, and thank you very much for sharing that story too, Kathy. <laughs> and really the story of your, your company and your personal journey as well. So I really just would like to thank you for joining us today and, and thank you for, for a great discussion and a lot of insight too. I think our uh, listeners will take a lot away from this discussion. And what's the best way for listeners to reach you should they have any further questions? I have, you know, LinkedIn is good. Our website has a lot, auburnmfg.com, and we have a lot of stuff on our website, so people can reach us quickly there as well. Great, and I would definitely encourage people to go to her website. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us and hope you enjoyed our show. Should you have any questions about NCTO's program or about NCTO, please email me at kellis at ncto.org. 
Also, please visit us at ncto.org and on Twitter at NCTO or LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And thank you again, everyone. See you next time.